Sweet, yes, we're, we're picking up the story here as we left off as the children of Israel had just won victory over this city of Ai. It had come after, first of all, they'd had a pretty shocking defeat in a battle against them. Uh, they had underestimated their enemy. They had overestimated themselves. And the result was, <laughs> as they hadn't sought the Lord, was that they had this shocking defeat. And, um, and so I guess, actually, it's, it's worth just quickly backing up this morning to get our bearings in, in this story. As the children of Israel are moving into the promised land to take possession of it, first they encounter Jericho. You recall uh, chapter 6, they marched around the walls of the city of Jericho. A miracle happened. The walls came down. The enemy was defeated. And uh, in the euphoria of that victory and uh, the excitement of all that God was doing, they immediately went out into phase two of the conquest. I, I, I'm giggling to myself every time I say phase two in the first service and the second service here. Phase two. I'd like to just skip phase two. I don't know what phase we're in any longer and just move on. Let's move on. So <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they said, let's abandon the phases. And, uh, and without the Lord, they just they rushed and, and cons- uh, rushed right into a conflict with the city of Ai, only to like, have this humiliating defeat. And Joshua 7, jo- Joshua chapter 7 recounts, you know, how the Lord revealed that there was sin amongst them and how it was uncovered, and then the Lord restored them. And then when things were made right with God and they had consulted God and actually heard from God rather than going forward in their own overconfidence, uh, God led them to victory. And so I love what happens here at the end of chapter 8. We're going to just look at five verses because following this victory, rather than now continuing on in this mistaken sense of euphoria and overconfidence and assumption that they're going to just have this unhindered conquest of the land of Canaan, Joshua leads the people rather than into the next battle. He leads them to the place of worship. And they build an altar to be a place for them to meet uh, as God's people with the Lord. And so, you know, I just, I just think about this and I would say this, um, God's heart's always for us to have victory, for us to move from victory to victory to victory. That's God's heart, absolutely. Uh, what we have to battle against in the face of that is self-confidence, self-reliance, uh, self-dependence. What the Lord wants from us as His children is that we would grow in our dependency upon Him, that we would recognize that our sufficiency comes from Him, and we want to grow in Jesus' dependency. And so Joshua, recognizing after a great victory, they needed to worship, that that was the proper response. We've talked about this the last few weeks, that this is the proper response when we've had a great victory. It's not to make assumptions, but to return to the place of humility of worship. And so Joshua uh, does that for the children of Israel after this victory over IE, and I've called this message worship and victory. Worship and victory. So let's check it out. Verse 30, chapter 8. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings 
And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And after he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly, the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived amongst them. So this just tells this interesting story. It's a pause. Remember, these guys have been in battle. And they take time out to worship after this great victory against the city of Ai. And Joshua leads the children of Israel into this area. This, this place is actually called Shechem, where he leads them. And that's the valley that lay between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The two mountains um, are kind of like twin mountains, except in the sense that, that one is uh, rocky and barren and the other one is quite treed and lush and green. And they have this valley in between them. The valley is quite narrow, just uh, maybe 500 meters wide. And then these mountain peaks rise up and the peaks themselves are about three kilometers apart. So it's like just this, imagine in your mind, this natural amphitheater, really beautiful spot. They actually say it's like one of the most beautiful spots in Israel. And um, they say this, that from the top of either Mount Gerizim or Mount um, Ebal, that you can stand up there and you can speak in a normal voice, and the person on the top of the other mountain, three kilometers away, can hear you. That it's this kind of natural amphitheater to it. So neat spot that the people of Israel gathered to have this teaching and to worship the Lord and have this victory. And and the place there in the valley is called Shechem. Now, Shechem is the place where God led Abraham when he first came to the land of Israel. When he had come there and, got, and he set up his first tent and the Lord met him and the Lord said, I'm going to give you this land and it's going to belong to all of your descendants as far as you can see and all that stuff. This is where this happened at the same spot. So this is a significant spot for the children of Israel. That had happened with Abraham, you know, 500 years earlier. And this is the same place actually where Jacob settled and made his home too for a time in Shechem. This is, this is the valley where Jacob's well is. And so just to kind of tie, because sometimes it's nice to catch this in Scripture to tie that together, this is, this is where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, Jacob's well. And he told her, I'll give you living water if you drink of me. You'll never thirst again. And so amazingly... This significant spot, Moses, the last time he ever talked to the children of Israel before they entered into uh, the, the promised land, just before he died, in his final message, he instructed them that they were to go to this spot and they were to do everything that we just read. That they were to build a monument. It's in Deuteronomy. It actually tells it in greater detail. It takes a couple chapters, actually. And Moses tells them, I want you to build a monument in the middle and you're to plaster it, and you're to put the commands of the Lord on there. It's like this big, big monument. Have an altar. Have half the people on this mountain, half the people on this mountain. 
and, and go over these things because these laws are going to be the way that you're going to glorify God in this land which He's called you uh, to live. And so hitting the pause button on the military campaign, Joshua led Israel uh, to this place where they would worship, where they would take themselves, uh, take opportunity to commit themselves again to the law of the Lord. It's actually interesting that, that the tribes that he puts, there's two mountains, one to which they respond to the curses. We're going to talk about this in a minute. And one to which they respond to the blessings. He takes, he takes the 12 tribes of Israel, he divides them this way. On the mountain of blessings were all the tribes that were descended from Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives. And then on the Mount of Curses were all of the tribes that were descended from their concubines, that, um, that Jacob had fathered all of these tribes. And so it tells us here that Joshua built an altar. This is the place where he would build the altar. Now, an altar, just in the Scripture, it's a meeting place between God and man. It's a place where sacrifices are offered, where there's communion, where the God of creation meets with His creation, and they worship, and the altar... Joshua tells us very clearly was to be made of uncut stones, that, that Moses had commanded these things, that no tools were to be used to trim or to shape these stones or to prepare them for the altar that the Lord had commanded them to, to build. This was a place where man met with God and, and they weren't to decorate it. They weren't to trim it out. They weren't to make it elaborate or put ornaments on it or trinkets. This isn't a Christmas tree. This is an altar to the Lord. And to, and to cover it with trinkets and ornaments and all these things would just be a misrepresentation of that which was to happen there. It, which makes me think of when you go to Israel. You know, I, I often think of pictures like this. The first place I think of when I think of these thoughts is Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem's like, I have no desire to go there ever again. It's like, we joke about it when we go there. It's like, well, there's new people here on the tour and they expect to go to Bethlehem. You're in Israel, so you have to take them to Bethlehem. But the pastors are always like, oh, I hate Bethlehem. Because when you go to Bethlehem, it's a real disappointment because what happens is you go to see the place where they say Jesus was born and you, you walk into this gaudy, trimmed out church with decorations hanging everywhere and silver and sparkly things and paintings and you can barely breathe because the incense is so thick in the air. And, and, and you, you go down into this little cave and, and you see that there, there's this spot and they've put this star on the ground made out of metal and they said, this is where Jesus was born. And you're like, this is weird, man. Get me out of here. I don't want anything to do with this place. And it's all like, you know, they've used all of these human efforts to adorn the spot to garnish it out, to decorate it so that it's meaningful. And the truth is the gospel, the message of Jesus, anytime we have to do that, we actually detract from the gospel as human beings. The simplicity of God's work should actually cause us as, as men and women to say, wow, God is amazing. That this is how he, he acts, that I don't, I don't have to trim it out and dress it up. No, the Lord just wants me to come as I am, to recognize the condition of my own heart apart from Him, and to recognize the humility with the humility and the holiness with which He approaches me. And, and, and so Joshua and the people were commanded, don't dress it up. Don't dress up the condition, you know. Sometimes I just, I just think about that for us, that we just want to be sincere people, honest people, 
people who speak the truth in love, as the Scripture tells us. We don't need to dress it up. Just be ourselves. And the gospel, in this sense, is, is simple as it is beautiful. Don't you love that about the gospel? That that's the wisdom of God. That a child can understand these things. And we face the same temptation that anyone who builds an altar could build, that, that we think we need to dress up the gospel of Jesus Christ so as to make it appealing to people. Dressing up the gospel actually does this. Dressing up the gospel actually robs the gospel of its power. Salvation is a work of God's spirit in the, in the heart of a man or a woman. It, and that doesn't mean this. When I say we don't need to dress up, it doesn't mean we need to be boring. It doesn't mean, it, it, I mean, we should still seek to do our best and, and, and to give our best and to seek to appeal to the hearts of those who need to hear the message of Jesus. But there's a warning here that it doesn't need to be dressed up. I don't need to dress myself up before the Lord. I don't need to dress the Lord up before other people. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of the gospel is in its simple proclamation and its teaching. That Jesus died for the sins of mankind. He gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Died on the cross. Was buried in the tomb. Was raised from the dead three days later. Victorious over sin. And in him there's life. And in him there is forgiveness. And in Him, uh, not only is there life abundant, but there is eternal life. And the power of the gospel is in that simple proclamation. The Holy Spirit goes to work on, in the hearts of lives and lives of men and women. As that is declared. And so you think about the altar. Joshua was told, don't dress it up. This is my work, the Lord's saying. This is my workmanship and the altar upon which our sacri the sacrifice for our sin was made is the cross. And the cross is, again, like the gospel, as simple as it is beautiful. It doesn't, you can't, how do you beautify a cross anyways? In fact, the, I would say this, the beauty, of the, the beauty of the cross is not in the cross. The beauty of the cross is in what happened on the cross. And who was on the cross? Jesus is beautiful. The work of Jesus is beautiful. That's what makes the cross amazing. And so the Lord says to them, don't, don't dress up the stones and then begin to glory in what you've done and in what you've produced and get your focus on the altar instead of on what happened on the altar. And so our altar is the cross. Our sacrifice is Jesus who offered himself. And Jesus is the sole meeting place between creation and creator. And you know, you think about it, Isaiah actually prophesied this about Jesus. He said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't about outward dressing. But the father said this about Jesus. He said, this is the precious cornerstone. <laughs> think about a stone altar. He, the Lord said, this Jesus, he's the cornerstone with whom I'm well pleased. And none of the, it just makes me think this, that none of the work of Jesus needs to be modified. I can't make anything that Jesus did better. And if I try to add to it, the reality is, is I will diminish the work of Jesus. 
And, and so with this altar, no human work was to be associated with the sacrifice so that sinners wouldn't think that their own works saved them. Yeah, we did it. We made this beautiful altar. So here's the tribes. Tribes of Israel were placed six tribes on Mount Ebal. Six, again, get the picture in your mind. Six, six tribes on Mount Ebal, six tribes on Mount Gerizim. And there the, the blessings were pronounced. And the altar, and the blessings were pronounced on Mount Gerizim. The blessings, uh, the curses pronounced on Mount Ebal. And the altar was built at the foot of Mount Ebal. Which you, you might think, well, why would that be there? Why would it be in the place of the curse? Well, it's a foreshadow of the cross. Jesus became a curse for us. The sacrifice who died as our substitute. And there on this altar, they offered two sacrifices. One was a burnt sacrifice, it says. One was a peace offering. Uh, a burnt sacrifice was exactly as it sounds. It was just totally consumed by the flames of the fire. And it pictures this, that you know, the, spirit, the, the Word tells us that the Spirit of God is a consuming fire. We're to be consumed. That, that uh, our responsibility and our duty to the Lord is to present ourselves to Him and to say, Lord, I present myself to you with no reservation. You can consume me for your glory. But we don't, I personally don't do a very good job at that. <laughs> well, I'm always holding back. We're always holding back. But that's the picture. And, but when you think about Jesus, this is what Jesus did. Jesus did exactly that. He held nothing back, no reserve of obedience to the will of God. So there was a burnt offering and they offered peace offerings, which was different. With a peace offering, you got to hold some back and then you got to eat it yourself. And it, and it was this picture that you were having fellowship with God. You were sharing a meal with the Lord, that you had sacrificed to him, that things had been made right, that there was now peace between you and your creator and you would fellowship with God. And, and we... I would say this, we feed on, on a peace offering when we just like meditate on the work of the cross and we say, God, thank you that Jesus died in my place, that I have peace with God because of Jesus. We feast on Jesus. And it tells us here in the text that Joshua inscribed the law on stone. There in the valley in the middle, the 12 tribes of Israel, Joshua built this monument, covered it with plaster, and inscribed on it the Ten Commandments. The law that was to govern the way that they lived in this new land of promise. And that just makes me think this, that, that the best way not to forget God's grace when He leads us into lands of blessing, when He leads us in His grace and mercy, the best way not to forget that is to remember His law. The law shows us that, hey, I actually fall short of what I've received here in Jesus. I fall short of the glory of God. The law reveals our need for, for God to have grace upon us to save us. And the more you understand God's grace, this should actually happen for us. The more we understand God's grace, the more we should love His law. The greater our desire, the more we understand grace, the greater should be our desire to obey the law, to love the law. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And when you love Jesus, you will love the law, which is just interesting to think that, just like these people, they're going to say amen to the curses. They even loved the fact that there were curses pronounced with being you know, dis disobedient to the Lord. 
Jesus, Jesus died to save us from those curses. Jesus died to save us from the penalty of the law, but he didn't, he didn't uh, die to save us from obedience to it. We're, we're freed from the law's sentence, but we're not freed from its standards. Uh, faith does not make the law of no effect. No, instead the Holy Spirit takes the law and he writes it instead of on these stones, the New Testament tells us he writes it on our hearts. And so salvation never freed us from having to obey the law. Salvation freed us from the penalty of falling short of the law. And so this is important. Why is this important? Because it means this. Holiness matters to God. That we look different as followers of Jesus from the culture around us, it matters to God. That He shapes our character and shapes the way our families live and the, the way our, our, our marriages function and, and the way we spend our... All of this matters to God, that, that His people look different from culture around them. And so holiness is not something that's optional for us as followers of Jesus. Again, you know, Joshua wrote the law on, on stone so that the nation could return to this place in times of remembrance and go, look at yes, this, this governs how we live. This governs us as God's covenant people. And the New Testament tells us it doesn't have to be written on stone anymore. It's, it's written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit helps bring about this character that we would conform to God's law. Again, stones are external. The heart is internal. Written on stones could never change a life, but God's law written on our hearts and powered by the Holy Spirit, we can, we can live a life of holiness to honor Jesus. And so Joshua tells them in the middle of this valley, or sorry, Joshua 8 tells us that in the middle of this valley, the priests were there, the elders were there, and the Ark of the Covenant was there. This was the last time in the book of Joshua that they pull out the Ark of the Covenant. From here on in, it's like left in, in the sanctuary and the ark was brought out this last time, the original stone tablets there present in the same spot where Joshua was making this copy of them. And so with this new generation in the promised land, they commit themselves. We're going to honor God. We're gonna, these are going to be the standards by which we live. We're going to follow his law and be his covenant people. And so again, just imagine in your mind these two, half of the nation on either side of this massive amphitheater and there they are in the in the valley would have been quite the sight and Joshua begins to read to them all of the commands of Moses and when Joshua read the blessings all the people on Mount Gerizim would give their like hearty amen amen just it would echo in that valley and then when he would read the curses the people on Mount Ebal would give their hearty Amen. And it was this massive congregational responsive reading with the whole nation. And, and it was a response to God's law that had been given on Mount Sinai. And the, and the law, again, was just to be this standard by which they were to live in the promised land. And the Lord set before them blessing and curse. So if you obey me, I will bless you. They said, amen. He said, if you disobey me, I will curse you, and this is what it looks like. And they said, amen. We agree to these things, Lord. So, so may it be. 
And Joshua was affirming that they would live by God's word, and they said their amen, and, and, and the shout of amen meant they understood. We understand these blessings. We understand these curses that are, are attached to it, and we understand that we are entering into a relationship that puts a responsibility on us. We're going to obey God's word. And it's cool here that Joshua actually tells us twice that the, so, there were sojourners there with them, that there was native Israelites, but then there were also uh, people that had joined, people from the region that had joined the uh, children of Israel, Gentiles, for, foreshadowing the coming in of, of the church. And the, the, so there was native-born men, women, children. There were sojourners there, and they'd joined together. And, and as Joshua read the, the law to them, they agreed. They said, yes, we agree to this. It's blessings and it's curses. And so Joshua and the priests read, read the law and the people covenanted in their hearts to keep it. And it just makes me think this, that God's law, His word, should hold the same place in our lives. Jesus bore our sins in His body. He reconciled us to God and we express our thanksgiving to the Lord we express our thanksgiving to him when we receive our grace, his grace by seeking to obey him, to obey his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey me. The Lord said, because I'm holy, you be holy. Live according to this. And I'm, I'm glad the New Testament tells us that all of the law and all of the prophets is summed up in one word. What is it? Love, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, you will fulfill all of the law. Here's the problem for me. <laughs> I can't do that even. <laughs> I can't even do that. I got neighbors that drive me crazy. And I just hold back from loving the Lord with everything that I am. And so, the amazing thing of the gospel is this, is that the Lord says, no, just be found, be found in me in the midst of this. Let me conform you to my image and join me in obedience. And, and so, as you read this, and we look at this just portion of Joshua, this account is important because it just illustrates the importance of holiness, the importance of committing ourselves to honoring the Lord in those areas, but I also think, too, the importance of public reading of Scripture. The blessings and the curses, you know, it's just really easy to, like, set aside some of the Bible and go, ah, I don't want to read that part. Yeah, we'll skip that teaching. We'll just, this part of, you know, doing the Bible, going through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it's like, we shouldn't be able to skip over anything. Can't just stick with the feel-good stuff. We have to land down on the stuff that makes us uncomfortable too. We, we don't get to omit parts of the Bible because it's uncomfortable. It's the Word of God, and we say a hearty amen <laughs> to the blessings, amen, to the curses, amen. You're God, and it's your Word. And so as followers of Jesus... We're not living under the curse of the law. Jesus bore the curse for us on that tree. 
And in Christ Jesus, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But that doesn't mean this. And here's the challenge for this morning. It doesn't mean this, that we ignore the law or that we live however we want. We recognize this. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're not saved by that. Only Jesus saves. But the law is fulfilled in us as we live by the power of the Holy Spirit and seek to honor God and live lives of holiness. And if we were to do this, if we were to put our lives under the law, we would forfeit the the blessings of the cross, the benefits of grace. So we want to be men and women who walk by the Spirit, who experience the life-changing power of the Spirit to help us to live for Jesus. And praise God, when I read this, I just think, wow. Praise God, the curse of the law has been borne by Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? That Jesus has bore our sin in his body on that tree. And the New Testament tells us, we're in Ephesians on Wednesday night, that Jesus has given, he has opened the way for us to have all the blessings that are are an inheritance that's in heaven. And by faith, we claim that and we enter into that promised life living. And so here's just the simple challenge this morning. Worship in victory. You know, as the Lord leads you through victory or even in defeat, return to the place of worship. Make your life an altar. Lord, I want to be an altar. I want to be a place where you meet. I want to be your temple. And in that, holiness is not optional. A good prayer is just, God, make me holy. You're holy, make me like you. Make me like you. And, and, and the way that happens is this, is that we have to constantly come back to the cross and to all that Jesus has provided and made available to us. And so that's Joshua chapter 8 here, just this small section of it this morning. I'm, I'm really quick today for uh, Matt. And, uh, and so I just want to leave you with that challenge. Worship in victory, you guys. Worship in victory. But know this, the Lord's called you to a life of holiness. And I've just been personally challenged by that recently, that this is not optional, that my life needs to conform to the Word of God. And so let me pray for you this morning. And then what I want us to do is just take a few minutes to just pray corporately like we've done on some of these Sundays as we come back together again, okay? And so let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the cross of Christ Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that on that cross, uh, you bore our punishment, you bore our sin, you were made a curse for us that we might have the gift of eternal life. And Lord, we just uh, express our faith in you this morning. We believe in you, Lord. We meditate upon the cross as we think, God, of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, We want to honor you, Lord, in how we live. We want to live in the power of your grace, Lord, but we also want to live lives of holiness that honor you and bring glory to your name. And so, Lord, make us holy, we pray. Make us, conform us to the image of Jesus, we pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey.